Hello and welcome back to the Eric Deem Show. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. Folks, we have one week left. One week left. Actually, less than a week. Until we're in a new year. We can finally say goodbye to 2020 and Happy New Year 2021. I look forward to... uh, I've been working on an episode, actually, so I look forward to sharing that with you on New Year's Day. So be sure to tune in for the Deems List, a special uh, New Year's edition of the Deems List coming this Friday. Uh, but back to today's show. Listen, we know why I started this, because um, I love tickling your ear with pragmatic prowess rooted in that Midwestern pragmatism uh, that I grew up with, that many of you have come to love and appreciate and understand yourself. Common sense, right? Well, a big piece of that is knowing how to think for yourself. And if 2020 has taught us anything, it's taught us that we really need to know how to think for ourselves. And this is nothing new, right? Thinking for yourself, deciding what you want, going forward, uh, pursuing your passions, nothing new here. Well, I have um, been following for a couple of years, actually, uh, I followed Tim Ferriss, which is how I found out about this guy. Um, so I've been following this guy named Paul Graham for, oh, the better part of the last decade, I want to say. You know, I've learned of him after college, uh, but have stayed pretty close to him. And I learned about him because he um, Tim Ferriss talked about him in a podcast and in his um, a weekly newsletter at one point, and he regularly shows up there. Uh, Tim Ferriss reads his essays. This guy named Paul Graham. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul. Paul's a programmer. He's a writer. He's an investor. And in 1995, he and a partner started the first SaaS company, which is Software as a Service. It eventually was sold to Yahoo, became the Yahoo Store, and now he publishes essays on paulgram.com, spelled just as you would expect it to be. And that gets over 15 million views a year. So he's doing quite well. He has started um, an incubator. And in 2005, it's called Y Combinator. They started it and they funded over 2,000 startups. And those include things you've heard of, Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe, and Reddit. So the guy has a few things to say and he's proven, right? You got to be careful who you who you're receiving advice from, suggestions from, who you're wanting to emulate. So, whole podcast there, whole series of podcasts we could do on that. <laughs> Just take inventory in your life and who you're learning from. Um, and there is that saying, right? You are a product of the five people you spend the most time with. Well, if you don't like who you are, I know of a way for you to fix. At least 20% of it, eliminate one of those people, right? So on this episode, um, I want to go through an article, an essay actually, that Paul Graham wrote. He wrote it back in November of this year, and it's entitled, How to Think for Yourself. So we're going to post the article in, um, in the show notes, but I want to go through and read um, just a little bit about what he's put together here. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, it really comes down to um, he differentiates between the independent mindedness and conventional mindedness. This this idea that some of us are more conventionally minded or independently minded. 
How did we get there? What does that look like? How does job and life play into that? He talks about these three components. The three components are the fastidiousness about truth, resistance to being told what to think, and curiosity. (laughs) I mean, let's just stop right there and think, right? Fastidiousness about truth. So being intentional and being careful about the information you're being told is truth. Resistance to being told what to think. How many of us are told what to think? I mean, we're born into a world where we don't know anything other than what's naturally already present in us as a human. And um, we're told from day one what to think from parents and community and the society around us. And curiosity. How many of us are curious? So let me just dive in here. Um, I'm not going to read the entire essay. I'm going to post it up for you to do that. But I'm just going to read a couple of his paragraphs here that I think are important. So again, this is from Paul Graham, How to Think for Yourself. He says, there are some kinds of work that you can't do well without thinking differently from your peers. To be a successful scientist, for example, it's not enough just to be correct. Your ideas have to be both correct and novel. You can't publish papers saying things other people already know. You need to say things no one else has realized yet. The same is true for investors. It's not enough for a public market investor to predict correctly how a company will do. If a lot of other people make the same prediction, the stock price will already reflect it and there's no room to make money. The only valuable insights are the ones other investors don't share. He goes on, ditto for essayists, an essay that told people things they already knew would be boring. So you need to tell them something new. There's room for a little novelty in most kinds of work, but in practice, there's a fairly sharp distinction between the kinds of work where it's essential to be independent-minded and the kinds where it's not. He goes on, I wish someone had told me about the distinction when I was a kid because it's one of the most important things to think about when you're deciding what kind of work you want to do. Do you want to do the kind of work where you can only win by thinking differently than everyone else? I suspect most people's unconscious mind will answer that question before their conscious mind has a chance to. And how many of you, I mean, we remember back to being a kid and when we're asked, what do we want to do? What comes to mind, right? Something where you're actually affecting change, where it's powerful, it's big. For me, it was, you know, I wanted to be a policeman, then I wanted to be a fireman, you know? Big machines, wanted to go and do it. And then it was politics, wanted to affect big change, you know. Fast forward, how much of that is still around? Or have we been forced into boxes to conform? Because we, um, we once were thinking for ourselves, but now we've been told how we should think, right? Interesting. He goes on. Independent-mindedness seems to be more of a matter of nature than nurture, which means if you pick the wrong type of work, you're going to be unhappy. If you're naturally independent-minded, you're going to find it frustrating to be a middle manager. And if you're naturally conventional-minded, you're going to be sailing into a headwind if you try to do any original research. One difficulty here, though, is that people are often mistaken about where they fall on the spectrum, from conventional to independent-minded. Conventional-minded people don't like to think of themselves as conventional-minded. And in any case, it genuinely feels to them as if they make up their own minds about everything. It's just a coincidence that their beliefs are identical to their peers. And the independent-minded, meanwhile, 
are often unaware how different their ideas are from the conventional ones, at least until they state them publicly. He wraps by saying, on the intro here, by the time they reach adulthood, most people know roughly how smart they are in a narrow sense of ability based on the ability to solve preset problems because they're constantly being tested and ranked according to it. But schools generally ignore independent-mindedness except to the extent they try to suppress it. So we don't get anything like the same kind of feedback about how independent-minded we are. He goes on to talk about uh, there may even be this phenomena, like Dunn and Kruger at work, where the most conventional-minded people are confident that they're independent-minded, while the genuinely independent-minded worry they might not be independent-minded enough. Isn't that so true? <laughs> I look at, uh, he has a, a note section here that I've looked at, and it says, one that uh, struck a chord and sticks out. It says, when I ask myself, what in my life is like high school? The answer is Twitter. It's not just full of conventional-minded people, as anything its size will, will inevitably be, but subject to violent storms of conventional-mindedness that reminds me of descriptions of Jupiter. But while it probably is a net loss to spend time there, it has at least made me think more about the distinction between independent and conventional-mindedness, which I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And boy... Hasn't Twitter done that for us? It has. Social media in general has done this. It has exposed so much about people. You know, growing up, you didn't really know where everybody stood. There was some beauty in this, right? I've talked about Jonathan Haidt before and, and getting to hear him talk. And one of the things I appreciated most about um, his talk was the, getting me to think about the distinction between pre-social media and social media. Pre-social media, you knew your neighbors based on your interactions with them, what they wanted to tell you, you know, having them over for dinner, the block party, all of that kinds of stuff. If the kids, if there were kids, you know, playing, and you got to define who it was. Social media has taken a lot of the joy of that away. You go in, well, they read the about section, it tells you everything about them, where they work, what they do. All the likes, the things they like, especially on Facebook. Who they like, what they like, what their political views are, what they're interested in. You go to the feed. It's chocked full of things that you otherwise wouldn't have known before without getting context. Context built in a relationship. Context built from having dialogue with the person. Now... We just get to put them in a the box, put them right in the box. And if, oh, well, that seems more like me, or I'm in that same box too. Now we jump over there. So much for thinking for ourselves. So let's go back to the essay here Paul Graham put together. And I want to jump up here to um, the next section. Again, I'm going to post this. There's a lot here. I hope each of you will read this and go to the show notes to do it. There's so much to pull out. He says, can you make yourself more independent-minded? I think so. This quality may be largely inborn, but there seems to be ways to magnify it or at least not suppress it. One of the most effective techniques is one practiced unintentionally by most nerds, simply to be less aware of what conventional beliefs are. It's hard to be a conformist 
if you don't know what you're supposed to conform to. Though again, it may be that such people already are are independent-minded. A conventional-minded person would probably feel anxious not knowing what other people thought and make more effort to find out. It matters a lot who you surround yourself with. If you're surrounded by conventional-minded people, it will constrain which ideas you can express, and that in turn will constrain which ideas you have. But if you surround yourself with independent-minded people, you have the opposite experience. Experiencing other people say surprising things will encourage you and encourage you to think more. A place where the independent and conventional-minded are thrown together is in successful startups. And I've had the pleasure and the misfortune, literally, of being in uh, a couple of startups. And so I can certainly relate to this. He says, the founders are, and early employees are almost always independent-minded. Otherwise, the startup wouldn't be successful. But conventional-minded people greatly outnumber independent-minded ones. So as the company grows, the original spirit of the independent-minded person is diluted. Or the independent-minded people are diluted. This causes all kinds of problems besides the obvious one that the company starts to suck. One of the strangest is that the founders find themselves able to speak more freely with founders of other companies than with their own employees. We've all seen countless examples of this, especially as companies get larger and the bureaucracies have to be added, right? So Paul goes on and he says, you know, he tries to learn, he talks about travel and the ability for you to travel to do that and and get differences of opinions, but you don't have to travel to do it. Um, He goes, I try to learn where people are just based on getting to know them. It's always good to make conversation when you meet strangers, but I don't do it just to make conversation. I do it because I really want to know. I can relate to that. Um, I've had the the pleasure of traveling across the U.S. to do various real estate deals, public-private partnerships and whatnot. And I love just finding the coffee shop where all the old men, typically, are hanging out about 7, 7.30 in the morning. I just pull up a chair, ask if I can join them, and it's amazing what you learn about a city, its leaders, where things are going just by doing that. That, my friends, is the secret sauce to getting deals done. So he goes on to talk about um, expanding your sources of influence in time and as well as in space by reading history. He says, when I read history, I do it not just to learn what happened, but to try to get inside the heads of people who lived in the past. How did things look to them? This is hard to do, but worth the effort for the same reasons it's worth traveling far to try to triangulate a point. Prevent yourself from automatically adopting conventional opinions. The most general is to cultivate an attitude of skepticism. When you hear somebody say something, stop and ask yourself, is that true? Don't say it out loud. I'm not suggesting that you impose on everyone who talks to you the burden of proving what they say, but rather that you take upon yourself the burden of evaluating what they say. He goes on, more generally, your goal should be not to let anything in your head go there unexamined. And things don't always enter your head in the form of a statement. Some of the most powerful influences are implicit. How do you even notice these? By standing back and watching how other people get their ideas. So now we're going to move into the three things he talked about here. Fastidiousness about truth, resistance to being told what to think, and curiosity. 
to go beyond this general advice, we need to look at the internal structure of independent-mindedness, at the individual muscles we need to exercise, as it were. It seems to me that it has three components. One, fastidiousness about truth, resistance to being told what to think, and curiosity. Fastidiousness about truth means more than just not believing things that are false. It means being careful about degree of belief. For most people, degree of belief rushes unexamined toward the extremes. The unlikely becomes impossible, and the probable becomes certain. The independent-minded, thus, have a horror of ideologies, which require one to accept a whole collection of belief at once and treat them as articles of faith. To an independent-minded person, that would seem revolting, just as it would seem to someone fastidious about food to take a bite of a submarine sandwich filled with a large variety of ingredients of indeterminate age and origin. Let me stop there. You know, the political parties are a place where we find ideologies all the time. At religion, we find ideology. If you're going to be a Baptist, if you're going to be a Methodist, if you're going to be a Catholic, if you're going to be a Mormon, whatever, you have to accept everything there. If you're going to be a Republican, if you're going to be a Democrat, if you're going to be an Independent, if you're going to be Green Party, you have to accept what that means. So we are inundated with this idea of... Um, ideologies and what that looks like. And I think people are turning against it. I think that's in large part why we got um, so much populism, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. The question is, are these people independent thinkers? Are they just jumping in, following along the populism like everything else, blindly listening because it just sounds good enough and it's a Molotov cocktail blowing up the institutions we've already had, right? So there's lots to be, uh, lots to question here. But I want to go on. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit more about the, the second component. The second component of independent-mindedness, resistance to being told what to think, is the most visible of the three. But even this is often misunderstood. The big mistake people make about it is to think of it as merely negative quality. The language we use reinforces that idea. Remember, how many of you heard this? You're unconventional. You don't care what other people think. But it's not just a kind of immunity. In the most independent-minded people, the desire not to be told what to think is a positive force. It's not mere skepticism, but it's an active delight in ideas that subvert the conventional wisdom. The more counterintuitive, the better. And we know plenty of people that have these qualities, and we're drawn to them. Well, you too can be this, right? He goes on, I don't think we can significantly increase our resistance to being told what to think. It seems the most innate of the three components of independent-mindedness, people who have this quality as adults, usually showed all too visible signs of it as children. But if we can't increase our resistance to being told what to think, can we at least shore it up by surrounding ourselves with other independent-minded people? The third component of independent-mindedness, the third and final component that uh, Paul has talked about here, Paul Graham, is curiosity, and he says it may be the most interesting. To the extent we can give a brief answer to the question of where novel ideas come from, it's curiosity. That's what people are usually feeling before having them. In my experience, he says, independent mindedness and curiosity predict one another perfectly. Everyone I know who's independently minded is deeply curious, and everyone I know who's conventional minded isn't. 
except curiously, children. All small children are curious. Perhaps the reason is that even the conventional-minded have to be curious in the beginning in order to learn what the conventions are, whereas the independent-minded are the gluttons of curiosity who keep eating even after they're full. Even after they're full. The three components of independent-mindedness work in concert. Fastidiousness about truth and resistance to being told what to think leaves space in your brain, and curiosity finds new ideas to fill it. I think this is, um, again, that's just a tease here of the essay in larger form that we are going to post in the show notes. I think now more than ever, we need to step back, especially after the year that 2020 has been and the election cycle that we have had and the proliferation of ideas and ideologies and people in social media and people telling us what to think, what we need to think, how we need to feel, we need to take a step back and remind ourselves how to think for ourselves. That's why I wanted to post this. Paul Graham, as I mentioned earlier, quite an accomplished individual, somebody we can all learn from. And uh, we're going to post this in the show notes. Read it. If you have any thoughts, I want to hear what you have to say. Are you challenging anything Paul has? Do you disagree or do you agree? What are your uh, what are your takeaways? Chief at ericdeemshow.com or on the socials at ericdeemshow. We're going to post it up. Remember to think for yourself, especially as we plan for the new year. I'm looking forward to coming back into your ears on Friday where we're going to release um, a special edition, a special New Year's edition of the Deems List. And boy, I can't wait to cross over the line of the 2021 with you. Talk soon.